We're going to look this morning as we kick off the series Afterlife and I, at James chapter 3, sorry, James chapter 4, and uh, thinking about this quote from N.T. Wright when he says, uh, what are we waiting for and what are we going to do about it in the meantime? And this is kind of the question that's, the two questions that are shaping where we're going to spend the next eight weeks or so as we think about the series of Afterlife. What are we waiting for and what do we do in the meantime? And we're going to begin here in James chapter 4, beginning verse 13. It says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow... We will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And James appropriately begins us as we begin this series, thinking about the afterlife with the reminder that our lives are so fragile. We are but a mist. We are a vapor. Uh, something that just kind of appears and is gone. And we're going to share, we're going to jump through a series of passages this morning. Normally, I like to have one, one text that we work through. Today, we're going to look at a series of different passages. And I've got four things I want to share with you. And the first thing is this. All of us will die someday. We're all going to die. All of us will die someday. A couple years ago, when my father passed, uh, on the, after we had sorted th- through things and, and I kind of began to absorb the shock and let people know who needed to know, I, I thought, well, it's time to figure out what we need to do next. And I knew where he kept important files and I had an idea of where to look. And so I went and I opened up one file drawer and sure enough, the front folder was, looked like it was what I was looking for. And I pulled it out and opened up that file folder. And sure enough, right on the left inside cover in my dad's handwriting was the, were these notes saying, in case of my death, call this number, give them this policy number. And this is the benefit that, that his wife, my mom, is entitled to, and, and on and on, all these step-by-step instructions of exactly what we we're supposed to do next. And everything I needed right in that moment was, was right there at my fingertips. And of course, the floodgates opened because even in his death, my dad was looking out for us and caring for us. But it made such a difficult time so much easier. It just took some of the edge off a really difficult time because of that kind of foresight and planning. And the fact of the matter is, the mortality rate is still 100%, and all of us are going to die and if you're a father or mother or grandmother or grandfather, to have that kind of a plan in place to make sure people know what to do next, who to call, where to go, where the important things are, who's going to get the dog, or maybe in some cases, who's stuck with the dog after you go. Because otherwise, that, those just become struggles that people have to deal with. All of us are going to die someday. And sometimes we think that if we don't make those plans, it's as though if we ignore it, it's just going to go away. No, if we ignore it, it's, it's not going to delay death from coming. And if we make those plans, it's not going to hasten death from coming. It's happening. All of us in the room, all of us are going to die someday. And to have those kind of plans in place help to make things just be ready to make it easier on those who, who come along after us. But yet, as Woody Allen famously said, it's not that I'm afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. And that fits to most of us apparently because of this. Number two, 54% of us rarely or never think about it. And 70% of us, 7 out of 10 of us, want to live to be 100. That 54%, the fact that a majority of us rarely or never think about death comes from CBS News, and 70% comes from Pew Research, that 70% of us want to live to be 100, which is kind of astounding. You think that 7 out of 10 of you uh, want to live that long, and of course, the closer you get to that, the more you really want to hit that milestone, hit that mile marker. And the idea is, as, as Ashley Montague said, the idea is to die young as late as possible. And my kids like to tell me that I've long since missed the chance to die young. Though I think I, I still might have a chance for that. But none of us know when it's going to happen. 
we're all going to die, and as much as more than half of us deny that, don't think about it or never really rarely think about the fact that we're mortal, it's all going to happen. And we don't know when it's going to happen. We don't, there's no way of predicting when it's going to happen, except for maybe one particular group. There's one demographic that we found there is a particular week that is especially dangerous for this demographic, and the demographic is grandmothers. There's a professor from Duke University, Dan Ariely, who found that a whopping 10% of his students have a grandmother who passed away, passed away during midterms or final exams. And uh, another professor, Mike Adams, from Eastern Connecticut State University, he found, <laughs> it's starting to set in, I think, here. <laughs> Mike Adams from Eastern Connecticut University says, grandmothers are 10 times more likely during a midterm and 19 times more likely to die before a final exam. He got looking at his students, and he found that students who were passing compared to students who were failing their classes, students who were failing, failing their class were 50 times more likely to have a grandmother who died than students who were passing their exams. So the moral of the story is if you're a grandmother, don't help your grandchildren save money for college. Your, your health is at risk here. Of course, it's ridiculous. But we, we have this sense of avoidance, just not looking at death as, as so ignoring it will make it go away. And this is precisely what Psalm 90 is describing, describes our situation well. In Psalm 90, verse 10, it says, Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures, yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. So verse 12, So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And so sometimes that, that phrase, teach us to number our days, is misconstrued as though God has numbered our days, like it's a threat. That somewhere in the galaxy there is a, a book that has exactly how many days you're going to live, and that's prescribed. I don't think that's exactly what the, the psalm is saying. I don't believe that God has numbered our days in that way. It's, a, it's an encouragement to remember that you're mortal, to number your days, to remember this is not going to go on in perpetuity, that your life is mortal, that your life is temporary. And that leads us to number three, that some things are extra beautiful because they're temporary. Some things are extra beautiful because they're temporary. Number three. Uh, and I think about a house, the house we lived at before we came down here to, uh, to the Corning area. We had Lake Erie right at the end of our street. And a mile, mile down the road from our house were, were the exquisite Lake Erie sunsets. And every night there would just be a beautiful sunset right over water right at the end of our street. And we went down and, and watched more sunsets than I can possibly count. And everyone was unique. Everyone was different based on how rough or smooth the water might be, based on how many clouds there were or were not in the sky, based on so many other conditions. Every sunset was unique. Even though it was the same place, you could plant your feet in the same spot every day, and yet every sunset was unique. And the thing about sunsets is you can't delay it. You can't say, I don't have time for it right now. I'll watch it in a couple hours. You can't DVR it. You can't pull it up on demand. It happens when it happens, and that's part of the beauty of it. Came across this, this Japanese phrase uh, just recently. It's, I believe it's pronounced mano no aware, and it's this phrase that doesn't have a good translation into English, but the sense of it is that, there are, that when something's being temporary, uh, when something being temporary makes it even more beautiful. This idea that something is beautiful and its beauty is enhanced by the fact that it's not going to last. This is like fall colors. Fall colors are beauty, beautiful all on their own, but their beauty is enhanced by the fact that if you don't watch it when you can, it's gone. It's, just, it's there and then it's gone. You watch the fall colors, it's getting to be peak, peak season, and all of a sudden it's just about peak and a big windstorm comes through and it's all over just like that. And if you don't catch that right weekend, it's over. 
We've, we've watched so many flowering trees and flowering plants suddenly burst into bloom this week. It's just an absolutely stunning week. Take time on your drive home to drive through the neighborhood and look at some of the flowering trees. And my sincere apologies to all of you seasonal allergy sufferers. I know you're absolutely miserable right now. But the beauty of spring is partly this kind of mano no arari concept that it's, it's, it's beautiful all on its own, but the fact that it's so temporary just enhances the sense of beauty. And so it is with our lives. Your life, being mortal and, and knowing that your days are numbered, that there's an expiration, expiration date stamped on every soul and on every human heart, it can lead you to despair. To, and, and for some people, it does lead them to despair. A real sense of uh, being mortal leads people to the brink. But for others of us, it can lead us to a real sense of awe that this is this beautiful thing that God has given me. My, my mortal life is a beautiful thing and it can lead me into a sense of awe of the creation around me and who God is and the, this opportunity I have. We, had a, we pastored a church for three years on the east side of Buffalo and we struck up a partnership when we were there with the Drug and Alcohol Rehabilitation Center and spent a lot of time with men who were going through rehabilitation and trying to get sober. And a prayer that they often prayed, it really got into my bloodstream from those years, was, Lord, I just want to thank you for waking me up this morning. And it's such a basic reminder that not everybody woke up today. Today is a gift. And not everybody got to receive this particular day. And we get to live today. And we will never get to live this day all over again. Today is a unique gift that we get to unwrap. And I just want to thank you, Lord, for waking me up this morning. It's a gift and I receive it from you with gladness. And this is exactly what Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is describing. It begins in verse 1, 2, and then verses 9 through 11. When the author of Ecclesiastes says, There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot. Now jumping to verse 9. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. And he has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. Pete Seeger wrote a song using that chapter, of course, and the birds made that famous. To everything. To yeah, you, good job. You, that, was, that, that wasn't really a good job. That was kind of half-hearted. I'd like to call you out to do that again, but, but I'm, like, I'm afraid it'll get worse if I ask you to do it again. But it's based on that to everything. Turn, turn, turn. There is a season, and... And that first part is the part that's captured in the song. The, my favorite part of that chapter is the part that Pete Seeger didn't plug into the song, which is that line, he has made everything beautiful in its time, but he's also set eternity in the human heart. And there's the sense that, yes, there's a time to be born, a time to die, a plant, time to plant, a time to uproot, a time to build up a building, a time to tear the building down. But there is this nagging sense in the human heart that we are made for more. There is this nagging sense that God has placed in our hearts that we are made for eternity and there's a longing in our hearts that goes beyond the temporary life. And this leads to number four, that life is fragile, but God is trustworthy for eternity. And this is really key, that, for, that word trustworthy is really, really important. I believe there is a heaven. I believe that we simply do not, we don't simply ex cease to exist when we die. I believe there is an eternal reward for those who are in Christ but I don't trust God for the present I'm going to get at the end of my life. I don't trust God for the pearly gates. I don't trust God in order to receive a reward at the other end. I trust God because he's trustworthy. I trust God because he's good and I can trust him. And whatever comes, I know it will be good because I know that he's trustworthy. And so we're going to talk about heaven next week. We're going to talk in the next few weeks about what lies on the other side of the finish line. 
But it's really important that we start at this foundational place to say, he's trustworthy. And that's our starting point. I can trust God with this most basic part of my life that when the end of my life comes, I can trust him because he's trustworthy, he's reliable, and he's good. Reminds me of the testimony of some people through history who have been able to face the end of their lives with with resolve and confidence and serenity because they so implicitly trust God. First story I want to share is from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Christian living under the Nazis in in Germany during World War II. He had a chance to to flee and to come to the United States and teach here, but he felt a sense of calling to be there and to to resist the Nazis. And uh, at one point, he and a group of of other believers were actively resisting the Nazis, actively conspiring against the Nazis. And as a result, he was caught and thrown into a concentration camp. In April of 1945, not long before the end of the war, uh, he had just led, he was a pastor and a professor, and he had just led some of the other inmates in a, in a worship service, preached the sermon, led them through the scriptures and songs. And not long after the end of that service, some prison guards came, and they said, Prisoner Bonhoeffer, come with us. And everybody knew that when the guards came and said that to you, that was the end. And so he turned to one of the inmates there with him, and he said, for me, this is the end but also the beginning. And he was let out, and they, they led him and the other prisoners who were to be hanged uh, onto a platform, and they had them all stripped naked. And he's, he stepped up onto the platform where he was to be hanged, and witnesses there say it was so moving to see how serene he was, how peaceful he was about it. And there, stripped naked on the platform where he was about to be hanged, he knelt and he prayed one more time. And within moments, he was dead. And the guards there were all so moved by the way that a man could face such injustice, such an inhumane end to his life, and yet he just trusted God and said, this this is the end, but for me it's also the beginning. Next story comes from the Rwandan genocide about a man named Bignoni. Uh, Bignoni lived in Burundi, which is between the Congo and Tanzania. Uh, and he, he was living at the time between the, of the, the conflict between the Hutus and the Tutsis, which culminated in the Rwandan genocide in, in I think, 1994, where half a million people were, were killed as part of the Rwandan genocide. Bignoni was a teacher, kind of a, a, what would be the equivalent of a principal in a school there. And uh, one day, an armed militia came to the school, and they called him out by name and called several of the other teachers out by name and told them to come with them, and they all knew what this was. They had heard enough stories and they knew enough of what was happening that they knew exactly what was about to happen. And they were led out into a field and uh, Bignoni was, was there with his teachers and some of the teachers were getting anxious, understandably, and uh, some of them were saying, just kill me first because I can't bear the thought of watching my friends uh, be gunned down like this. And, and Bignoni said, no, 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 I'm their leader. I will go first. And this is what he said. He said, they'll take me first, and you're going to see what it's like to walk right into the presence of Jesus Christ. Bignoni then asked the guards if he could pray for them. And they had never had anybody ask them that. And so they kind of stumbled and said, sure, I guess. And he prayed for them. Prayed for the guards who were about to execute him. And then after he'd prayed, he said, can I sing for you? And his name, Bignoni, wasn't actually his given name. It wasn't his legal name. It was a name that had been given to him. It's a name that means a little bird. 
is that he just had a beautiful singing voice and was singing all the time. And so he had been given this name. He's called Bignoni as a representation, as a, as a, as a way of uh, acknowledging just this beautiful voice that he had. And so they said, sure, you can sing for us. And he sang this hymn. This is the, the song he sang. Out of my bondage, sorrow and night, Jesus, I come. Jesus, I come. Into thy freedom, gladness and light, Jesus, I come to thee. The last line of that hymn is this. Out of the fear and dread of the tomb, Jesus, I come. Jesus, I come. Into the glorious light of your home, Jesus, I come to thee. Soldiers were so moved by all this that they, they huddled up and said, what do we, we've never seen anything like this. What do we do with this? And they realized that they were men under authority and if they didn't carry out this deed that they were going to have to pay the price for this. And so they carried out the heinous deed and immediately this whole group of soldiers went down into a bar and they drowned their sorrows. Except for one man. A lieutenant in that group was just so stunned he didn't touch a drop. And at the end of the night, when the sun had gone down, he went to the home of a Christian in their, in their neighborhood, a woman named Aunt Esther. And he called out to Aunt Esther, asked her to come out and speak to him. And he said, Madame, this is what he said, Madame, would you please tell me about this God? I've never seen anyone face death like that. That was a miracle. Can you explain it to me? And Aunt Esther prayed for him and explained to him the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he could be forgiven of his sins, that he could have that kind of peace with God in his own life. And so he prayed that, and he received the forgiveness of his sins, and it totally changed his life. He went back the next day to the other soldiers and explained the gospel to them, explained to them, we don't have to carry around this guilt for this terrible thing we've done. We can be forgiven and have a new life in Christ. And he led a number of them to Christ. He began a Bible study there in the barracks, and there they began to sing the kind of hymns that Bignoni had sung. And eventually he became such a disturber there among the, among the militia that his authorities even had him killed. But by that point, there was a hundred of them who had come to Christ, all starting at that song of Bignoni, as he so faithfully and, trust, and, and, and confidently just trusted God in those final days. This last story is more personal. Uh, this is my dad, Joe Dunmire, who uh, passed away two years ago this spring. This is my dad holding my twin boys, who are now 17 when they were uh, newborns. Uh, he died two years ago this spring, and it's an ache I carry in my bones every day. Uh, my dad loved the Lord and uh, was a, a great, great dad. He said right before he turned 80, he said, it's amazing how God works it out. Just when you get a little more time on your hands, you start moving slower. <laughs> and uh, he loved the Lord every time he'd be there to visit. His Bible was sitting next to his chair. Growing up, he was always leading in our churches one way or another, and boards and search committees and teaching Sunday school classes and leading Bible studies. One of my last conversations with my dad, um, I didn't realize it was going to be one of my last conversations with my dad, but uh, I was serving at another church and my dad uh, was encouraging me. He said, you're going to have, there are going to be opportunities that come along and I just hope that you're open to them when they come. And that said a lot coming from my dad, who was pretty much allergic to change. He was an IRS auditor and I don't think he ever changed his wardrobe and Everything was consistent. He was the man of consistency. For, so for him to encourage me to be open to a change was huge. And within a few weeks, he was gone. And within a few months, we began the process of coming here to Victory. And I just know in my bones that uh, Victory is an answer to prayers for my dad. And I know how much he would love this. I just wish he'd gotten a chance to see what we're experiencing here. Uh, in the final week of his life, um, we've recognized pretty quickly how his health has deteriorated. 
And uh, we had made some arrangements for, for care that he could stay at home, take some pressure off my mom, and, and receive the care that he needed at home. And we are going through the process of explaining this to my dad, what we had what worked out and the care he was going to be able to receive at home just to keep him more comfortable. And he interrupted me and said, I'm not afraid to die. And it just knocked the wind out of me. And he said it a second time for emphasis, I'm not afraid to die. And within 48 hours, he had finished his race and entered into his Savior's presence with peace and full confidence that the Father's hands are a perfectly safe place to be. Some of you know that uh, just a couple days ago, I was in a, a very serious car accident. I was about a mile up the road here and um, was, had the right of way, and uh, I'm not sure exactly what happened with the other driver, but another driver uh, made a mistake and, and pretty much T-boned my car. By the way, I want the EMTs and police who were first responders on the scene were fantastic. So it was just a wonderful response, right, right the word go. And they were right on the scene and really, really helpful and um, but as I initially thought, oh, it's a little fender bender, and, uh, and I went to open up my driver's side door and realized there was no opening that door. It was permanently sealed shut, and I had to climb over the center console and out the other door and walk my way around, and as I looked, I mean, realized right away my car was totaled. The other driver's car was totaled. Uh, thankful don't have a, a scratch to speak of and, and really feel remarkably good for as bad as it was. Uh, even the, the insurance adjuster said it could have been a lot worse. The difference of a couple inches one direction or another could have been... Uh, a, a different situation and as I as I walked around my car and looked at the state of my car and realized I was not driving that thing ever again I thought you know Lord I knew thought about this message and knowing what I was speaking about today and the fragility of life and mortality and I said Lord you know I'm always looking for material but isn't this a little bit <laughs> but I, you know I never saw in this case I never saw the other car coming I think that actually saved me because I never had time to tense up but likewise we don't see it coming Life is incredibly fragile. Tomorrow is guaranteed to no one. Not any of us can, as James said, who of us can say we're going to do this or that tomorrow only if the Lord is willing. We have no idea what the future holds. And yet we can face an uncertain future because we follow in the steps of people like Bonhoeffer who's able to say, for me this is the end, but it's also the beginning follow the steps of people like Bignoni who's able to say, you're going to watch someone enter straight into the presence of Jesus Christ. And like my dad, who's able to face what he knew was the end and say, I am not afraid. Not because of what we bring, but because of the confidence we have in Christ. Out of the fear and dread of the tomb, Jesus, I come. So I want to, as we close here, I want to think about we trust Jesus with a lot and maybe you've trusted Jesus with your soul I hope that you have I hope that you've you've confessed your sins to Christ and received the forgiveness of your sins but more than half of us avoid this subject of our mortality more than half of us avoid thinking about the fact that someday we're going to die and I just want to invite you into the peace that we can have that we can truly confidently approach the end of our lives whenever that may come however many days we have left and say I trust you with this because your hands are a perfectly safe place for me to be. Why don't you pray with me? Lord Jesus, take my life. However many days or weeks or years I may have, 
whatever my future may hold, I want to thank you for waking me up this morning, putting breath in my lungs. Today is a gift that not everyone gets to receive, and I'm so grateful to get to be alive today. And we trust you because you're trustworthy. We trust you because we know that to depart from this life, for those of us who are in Christ, it is to be in the presence of God. Lord, give us the peace that passes understanding. Help us to live courageously and boldly in the confidence that we are in your hand. Help us to number our days and to honor you with them. We pray it in your name.